collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Good morning, everyone. I am happy to be with you all today for another episode of Collective Power. And my guest this morning is David Kaplan, my accountant. Good morning, David. Good morning, Rita. I just want you to understand that today being Friday the 13th in 2020, if I happen to get hit by an asteroid while I'm talking to you, you'll understand why. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the heads up. No problem. I wish I, I had known I would have sent you my asteroid, my special asteroid shield. And then yeah, you know, okay. we could have, I, we I could think have I'm set good. up that way. You're a kid for now? Yeah. Cool. So David, I love talking with you and I'm really happy to have you on the show today because other than being really, really brilliant at what you do, um, you've also been like like an activist for shifting some legislation about like you know, pieces of the financial system that I would have never even known existed if we hadn't talked about it. But also you have a phenomenal sense of humor and an insight into a lot of what our kind of politics are doing right now because of the nature of you being an accountant and understanding your financial system the way you do. So um, I suspect that we're going to laugh a lot and cry a little. (laughs) (laughs) Or a lot, yeah. So how are you doing this morning, David? Uh, Doing well. Doing well. You, you do need a sense of humor these days. You know, there's there's a lot going on in the world that is uh, unusual, to say the least. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, better to laugh than to cry. <laughs> Absolutely. So there are all these studies about how laughter is healing and like, you know, how like it releases endorphins and it gives us more resilience and all that yummy stuff. I believe that. Yes. So before we dive in, tell us a little bit about you. Like I've, I've known you for a few years now. I think it's, ooh, it's since I moved to Germantown. I think I've known you for like 15 years, man. At least, yes. Oh my God. That's a lot of taxes you've done. Yeah. Um, so I ask people, tell us a story about you that has our listeners uh, know you a little bit more the way I know you, like as a kind of full human being, as opposed to just your CV or your professional oh, bias. Like a real human being? Yeah, like um, a real human I, being. I love to travel, uh, as you probably know. And every year I try to do some special trip after tax season because there normally is a downtime and I get to see the rest of the world and the rest of the country. Unfortunately, this year was not one of those years for obvious reasons, and it has weighed heavily on me, I will tell you. And the tax season didn't end. It went until now with no break. So it's been uh, a year, but 
Last year in 2019, which I may talk about later, I drove cross country, no interstates, rented a car, drove coast to coast and flew home. One of the best vacations of my entire life. The year before that, I flew around the world, which was not one of my best vacations because a lot went wrong. But at least I had that experience. Traveling, as I don't need to tell you, is important, I think, because you get perspectives outside of your own body. You know, we grow up in certain places, we live certain experiences, and it is important to get out of ourselves and to be able to see other people and to be able to understand how other people think. And I will tell you that it was more prevalent, I think, when I drove cross country than when I flew around the world. Because this country, even though it's one country, is very diverse from coast to coast. I will tell you that I I essentially drove through five areas that were very, very different. It was mid-Atlantic to deep south to Texas to the Rockies to California. And every one of those areas is very different. Their economic outlook is very different. Their lifestyle is very different. And it's very educational to be able to experience that. And I'm curious, is there like one interaction or one person that you met with whom you had like a conversation that really stayed with you? In particular, yes. the road, the across the country trip, because I know yeah, that was yes, really Yes, one. good and bad. Funny story. When you drive through the South, you pick up a Southern accent. You can't help it. <laughs> and you you start to talk that way. So uh, in Amarillo, Texas, I drove in, uh, checked into my hotel. They told me to go next door to the steak place, which I did, sat down at the bar and immediately started talking in a Southern accent to the you bartender. Got the I got it. I got it. Yeah, my bartender was Amanda. She's, she said, hi, how you doing? I'm fine. Oh, God, got it. And I had a, a coupon for a free appetizer. So I said, uh, I have this coupon. Is it good for any appetizers, for specific appetizer? How's that work? She said, no, it's good for any appetizer. And it's like, okay, I'll have the shrimp cocktail. And I got that. And I ordered my dinner and everything. And I'm sitting at the bar. And uh, this couple sits down next to me. And the husband says to me, that looked good, speaking about the appetizer. And I said, it was, and it was free. And of course, I have to talk to him in a Southern accent because I talked to the bartender in a Southern accent. So I figured it's a five minute Uh conversation and what's the big deal? Over an hour later, speaking in fluent South, the entire hour, We exchanged phone numbers. We got very friendly and uh, communicated for the rest of the trip. That's lovely. That was fun. At what point did you disclose that you were a Yankee trying to Uh, disrespectfully? Actually, I I told them I was from Philadelphia. I told them everything true. I just never got out of the accent and still haven't. As a caveat to that, I heard from him later that his wife left him and he is single and... um, and we're not talking as much as before, so uh, oh. whatever. 
Yeah. But yeah, it was that was fun. But there's so many stories of the road. It was it was great. Yeah. So like I'm sure like the listeners will know from this like from this conversation that like tax season, you actually made taxes be fun because we laugh so much. <laughs> I, I really try. I also go to do a good houses. job. You go do a good job because we do we do taxes and then we do updates or updates and exactly. then taxes right. and they're all so much fun. Yes. <laughs> As you know, I typically go to people's houses instead of them coming to me. Of course, this year was quite different, and next year will also be quite different. But uh, that perspective helps quite a bit because they get to be comfortable with me because I'm in their house Mm. with their kids running around and their pets running around. And I've had cats jump up on my keyboard and things like that. And And being comfortable, they are more easily open to discussing their issues, their problems. I get to know their kids. I get to know their whole family. And it becomes a much more intimate uh, relationship, which is very important because they say that there are three types of relationships that are intimate. It's your doctor, your uh, religious person, and your financial person. And you really need to be able to open up and discuss whatever is on your mind or else it doesn't help you. So I've always tried to get that approach with people and they really appreciate it. That's really remarkable, David. And well, first of all, I think in a lot of our lives, there are people who are very intentional with their profession the way you are, right? And you just don't, I like, we've never had this conversation before. So I actually didn't know sure. that that was part of your rationale. And since we're talking about the economic system today, I think it's a great segue to the fact that money carries a lot of shame in this society. It sure right? does on both ends. If you have too much money, there can be shame associated with that Mm. because you feel guilty. If you have not enough money, there's shame associated to that because you can't afford, maybe you have to ask people for help. So on both sides, money is is a very difficult concept and, and very emotional. Yeah. And mainly like we have money. I've done a lot of healing work around money. Like we Mm -hmm. have money collapsed with so much stuff, right? Like self-worth, security, um, value, contribution. Um, There's just like these really big things that life that play a really important role in life that we try to measure through money and which doesn't always work. Right. Right. And I'm really, really, really intrigued to, like, I like this idea that you actually go into people's homes because part of what you're doing is reducing the shame, right? Like reducing that by building the relationship with your clients in a strong way, then the shame gets reduced and the, there's a breathable space there. My clients typically are not afraid to ask me anything or tell me anything which is incredibly important when you're trying to help them with their financial situation. Honesty is really, really important. Yeah. And so what I hear is that you're, by kind of building the relationship and reducing the shame, then people can be more open with you and then you can be more helpful as well. 
you know, I always, I wonder about societies that didn't have money as the backbone. Like what did people calculate value based on? Right? <laughs> Interesting. Right? Like yes. where did value and security come from? And it all came from community. That and not having leprosy, I guess, back then, you know, that was important too. Yeah. Like you mean by being safe in community, like having created right. safety in another kind of way? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Last week I was reading Sand Talk, which is a phenomenal book written by an Aboriginal Australian. He talks about how oftentimes when we think about Indigenous communities, we think about, like we think about culture, but we don't uh -huh. actually think about mindset. Right. Um, and one of the things he says is, you know, if this myth of, you know, when we were primitive, we were all starving, if that were true, we wouldn't have evolved to be hairless. Like, and as vulnerable as children as we are, like we're one of the most vulnerable species from a physical standpoint. Right. And he's like, we're vulnerable because communities took care of each other. So we could evolve to be vulnerable. True. Pretty fascinating. Anyway, meanders of societies without money. I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about like what our society would look like if, if we didn't have money or we related to money differently. So um, it would be very different. I can assure you. <laughs> very different. So tell us a little bit, like, what are, do you think are the misperceptions that people have around our economic system? I think it's more problem of ignorance than uh, misperception. I think people don't understand, and not that that's a fault. I mean, I'm trained, so I understand this. Most people are not trained in finance or economics. So they don't really understand. They have to believe what they're told. And what they're told means told by the president, told by the Congress, or told by social media, which is worse, or told by their friends. I will, I will tell you that my, least, my three least favorite words are, my friends said. And I hear that all the time. But this is what people have to get their information from somewhere if they're not trained in it. So they choose their source. That can be a problem when you're choosing Facebook or the internet or, or whatever, and people have opinions, but not facts, they become facts to you, unfortunately. Also, when you have a president that's not being honest, or when you have Congress that doesn't tell really what the goals are of the things that they do, you can be shifted, your opinion can be shifted based upon what you hear, and you have to have a trusted source. It's very important. So how does that impact how we look at the economic system? You think about how we think of it commonly versus how you understand it. I hate that it's this way, but what happens is you have people in power that are voted in. And those people are voted in based upon the common person, I will say. And the common person judges that person based upon what they hear from other people. So if someone is has a misperception of economics and they think that the person that is running is doing a good job when in fact they're not, then they will vote that person in, which will prolong their suffering. And that's problem. That's where education is so valuable and not just 
educating from a, a, uh, an academic perspective, but educating from listening to people who know what they're talking about. And then all of a sudden, if you understand that what is being done is really not what should be being done or could be more detrimental, then uh, you know maybe you vote that person out and you vote somebody else in that can fix it. You know, when you look at the current situation and trying not to stereotype, but it typically in history, there are two ways to look at fixing or affecting the economy. It's top down and bottom up. Typically Republicans are top down, typically Democrats are bottom up. And let me explain that a little bit further. You've heard the term trickle down economics, I'm sure. Republicans tend to be fans of trickle-down economics. And what that essentially says is, if you give the rich people money, they will hire people and they will, and it will trickle down through the hiring process to the people below. And that will boost the economy. Bottom-up approach is you give handouts to poorer people welfare, uh, minimum wage, that kind of thing. And by them having more money, they will buy more, which will build up the economy and help the rich people because they're buying more. Two very different schools of thought on the economy. And in history, trickle down has been shown not to work. It's much better bottom up than top down. However, people have to believe that So if they don't believe that, it continues to happen. And then you have booms and busts, which is where we are now. Tell me a little bit more about why the trickle down doesn't work. You were saying historically it's been proven not to work. Here's what happens. And I'll I'll divide society into two groups, rich and poor. Poor, including the middle class. Rich, including the kind of rich. So just to stratify it a little bit. The poor people spend everything that they get, plus they run up credit card debt, whatever. So if you give them money, it will be spent and it will be put into the economy. Think of it this way. If you make more money, you can buy more food for your family. Maybe if you're really poor, you only eat two meals a day. If you make more money, you buy more food and you eat three meals a day or you buy a new car, or you buy a new house, or whatever, you immediately put that money into the economy where it can work. If you're wealthy and you're given money, a lot of that goes into savings because you're not spending as much as you're making now. If you make more, you still don't need it because you have everything that you want. So giving the rich people money doesn't help the economy because it goes into a bank somewhere or it goes into an investment somewhere and it doesn't circulate. So just because you give rich people money does not mean they're going to hire more people. They just might build up a bigger bank account. So because of that, if you assume that you give rich people money and it automatically goes down to the poorer people, that doesn't always happen. Whereas the flip side If you give money to poorer people, they will always spend it because they don't have enough. That's where trickle down doesn't work. The rich tend to get richer. And also, if they do spend the money, a lot of it is spent overseas. It's not spent in America. 
They go on trips. They fly around the world like some accountants, you know. They spend it on yachts that are made in, you know, Poland or whatever, or they, they buy uh, cars from Germany or they buy things that are made in Japan or China. So just because you give them money and they spend it does not mean it's helping America. Yeah, and America doesn't produce much anymore at all. So That's correct. Lug- and, and, and luxury goods are typically foreign, interestingly. Right, right. right. And, and by the way, typically foreign. not manufacturing a lot is not necessarily bad. Mm-hmm. Because if manufactured goods are manufactured elsewhere cheaper, then the average person can afford more things because they're buying them at a cheaper price. If unions, let's say, build up wages so that you know they, it's it, you can't make something as cheap in America as you can elsewhere where they have lower paid wages. To force it to be made in America does not necessarily help. It can help people, but you can employ people in different ways in, in service industries or in things like solar and wind energy or, or you know green energy or something like that, where you don't have to manufacture as much and you can still have people having jobs. So not having manufacturing in America is not necessarily a bad thing. It, a lot of times it's looked at, at that way, but it's not always that way. It depends on how the, what the government does to stimulate the economy. Any other misperceptions you can think of? Well, I kind of touched on it a little bit, but trade is is an important concept. And that goes back to the manufacturing issue. President currently believes that a trade deficit is bad. Uh, A trade deficit in very simple terms means that we as a country import more things than we export. So a trade deficit means you trade, you're buying more things than you're selling. Now, if the country were a business and you were running a deficit, in other words, more cash was going out than coming in, that's a bad thing. The president looks at the country as a business. It is not. Mm. So in a business, a deficit is a bad thing. In a country, a trade deficit is not necessarily a bad thing. It could be, but not necessarily. And going back to what I said before, if you have goods that are cheaper elsewhere, or conversely, if you have things that can only be made elsewhere, think of olive trees in Italy. You can't really grow olive trees in America very well. In some places you can, but not like in Italy, I assume. I've never been to Italy, but from what I'm understanding, olive trees are bigger over there. Yep. So my parents are, and we're in harvest season for olives. There you go. It's like this this is the month of harvest season. So if, if you want olive oil to force it to be made in America, doesn't make sense. So that if you need olive oil, you're going to buy it overseas. Rice, basmati rice, 
uh, jasmine rice produced overseas. It is very difficult to produce rice here. So if people are eating rice and olive oil, they're going to be importing them and not exporting. So that's an example of where a deficit is not a bad thing because if you didn't have that deficit, you wouldn't be eating olive oil and rice. A lot of people like that. So being able to get goods that you can't get here is important. And that's why when you can't look at a trade deficit as, as negative because it may mean that people are buying lots of goods cheaply and things that they can't get here and enriching their lives and making their life better. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's important to understand and trade, I will tell you, is a very difficult concept for the average person to understand. They understand what trade is. They've seen boats. They know what containers look like and they know that things get shipped and get shipped in and all that but they don't understand the mechanics of it, of a trade deficit. They don't understand tariffs. What's a tariff? What it, why is it bad? Why is it good? All these, these concepts, which are very complex, are important for us to understand the policies of this country. I'm yep. really intrigued with this piece around the country is not a business. Like, are there other right. examples that you could make of how managing a country as if it were a business doesn't actually work? Here's one. In a country, you can't fire your citizens. They're there. People live in your country. You're required to take care of them. If you had a business and you had non-performing people working for you, you would fire them so that you would only have productive people there. In a country, there are people that aren't productive, not because they don't wanna be, because maybe they can't be, maybe they have a disability, maybe they just can't find a job where they live, maybe they can't afford to move somewhere else. You can't just say, well, you're non-productive, I'm not going to pay you. As a country, you have a, re a requirement to give welfare to those people, to give food stamps to those people, to help the people that can't help themselves. In a business, you don't have that. A business is focused on making money. A country is not focused on making money. A country is focused on keeping economics controlled so inflation is not out of control, so that people can have a more fulfilled life. And government, and business are very different animals and you can't get in power in a country and think that you're going to run it like a business. That is why in many cases, including our current president, and it's not his only fault, he's a businessman. He's trying to run it like a business. You can't run a country like a business. I will also say our governor in Pennsylvania is also a businessman. I happen to like Tom Wolf. I've met him. I've had a conversation with him. He is a nice guy. He, he wants to help, but he's looking at the state as a business, not as politics. And in a government, it's not just you running the show. You have to work with a Congress. You have to understand politics. And let me tell you, Rita, if you have never seen the inside of the sausage factory, it is not pretty. 
okay? I have dealt with state government for 16 years. And I can tell you, as much as I like some of our representatives and senators, it is an ugly business and it doesn't go the way you, it's not logical necessarily. Many years ago, I was treasurer to my state reps election campaign. He was very good. He was very sharp. One of his jobs in state government was ethanol content of gasoline. And he had a bill to mandate 20% ethanol in all gas. You can remember back about 15 years ago, ethanol was a big thing. And so he went derived from corn, right? Like it's that's correct. Like so, it if corn or fiber or and and all like the corn, but it's not actually edible corn. That's another interesting part about how yes. the Midwest has been suppressed. It's not actually edible corn. It's unedible corn that's only used for fuel and for ethanol. Correct. Correct. All right. Just a little sociological context. Go for Absolutely. It. Yes. So he had a bill to mandate 20% ethanol, and he went to representative on the other side of the aisle and said to her, this is my bill, what do you think? And she said, oh, well, that sounds good. I mean, you know, 20% ethanol is good. So he said, okay, so you'll support my bill? And she said, no. And he said, well, why not? She said, I just don't like mandates. He said, but you said you think it's a good idea. She said, oh, it is. I just don't like mandates. And that was it. So politics doesn't work the way you think it should work. It's not necessarily logical. A lot of times it's, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, yeah, that's a good idea, but it doesn't have legs. So we're not going to do anything with it. In other words, you can have a great idea. And you can have a lot of people that think it's a good idea, but if they don't think that bill can pass, instead of working to try to convince people to pass it, they say, eh, it's not worth the effort. Sorry, but, you know, we're going to move on to something else. That's how so government works. So you're saying that at least state government, from your experience, right, um, mm -hmm. is, works with the low-hanging fruits all the time. It only it, works most of the time. around yes. what can be won, not actually on what's important. That's correct. And I believe that goes to the federal government as well, although I don't have experience there. But I can tell you that's what it is in state government. So how does that impact our economic system? Well, what it means is if you have an idea, think of um, Uber in the early days. Think of Google in the early days. Crazy ideas like flying cars kind of ideas. And most people would pass on that. So you would think, well, it's a great idea, but it's pretty fanciful. So we're not going to do that. And Google and Uber will never exist. Can you imagine the society now without that? You had to take something that wasn't low-hanging fruit, and you had to have someone who had the ambition and the desire to make it work to have it come to fruition and have our society be what it is today. Well, if you only went for low-hanging fruit, those things wouldn't exist today. So that explains why government is always moving so slow, 
because that it's is correct anti-innovation it's basically yep. if you only go for what you can win mm-hmm. that means that you're always going to tweak you're right. never going to shift so let's shift that to the green new deal and medicare for all two concepts that on the surface sound really really good you have a planet that is in crisis you have a green new deal that will help solve the planet's problems you have Medicare for all that could ensure everyone in this country for health ins- with health insurance. They're not easy. They cost a lot of money. They're not easy to get votes for. And they're a so, system change, right? They're a system change approach. Like absolutely. don't look at the corners, look at the beast at the center. Right. And I'm not saying that I agree with Medicare for all or the Green New Deal. I agree with the concept, but I'm not necessarily certain that that's good for us right now. The problem is it will never happen because people are opposed to it because it's out of the box thinking. And that's why the majority of Americans who are very set in stone and don't want to take risks will not go for them and they look at them as being radical. Yeah, you know I disagree with you on that in terms of like the pulse of where our country is, but I totally see your point based on like the experience you've had and now with what you've told me about how your experiences in government even more. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying about government is fascinating to me because a couple of things. First, ever since the elections, there are like all these Trump supporters that are popping out around me who are the people I would have least imagined. Correct. And and many are, because they have this critique of government, they're fine with him throwing an ax through the thing. Because they're like, the government's not going to change from within. It's too solidified. We need a disruptor. Let him destroy the sucker, and then we'll figure out how we're going to do it from there. That's how he got in in the first place. Yes. Yes. And it's really fascinating that there are some people from what I would absolutely have called the left, right? Mm-hmm. Allied with people who are staunch racists, who are basically allying around, let's like kind of break down as much as we can, because the mm-hmm. government, a really radical breakdown, because it's never going to shift from within. I kind of knew that argument before. It kind of surprises me after four years of him. I've spent a couple of jaw-dropping hours watching uh, friends' news coverages. Here's what I'll say about that. It's not wrong to have a disruptor. You just have to have the right disruptor. Yes. You, You have to have somebody that wants to come in and change the system and knows how to do it and isn't all about himself. If you have somebody that comes in and I'll throw out a Bernie Sanders, not not that I'm necessarily a Bernie fan, but there's a reason to have someone like Bernie in government because he has plans and he understands it's important to disrupt the system and here's how you do it. Or an Elizabeth Warren, for example, you can disrupt the system and not have it be the same as it is every single day. But that doesn't mean you get a total radical in or reactionary, like Trump. Reactionary. Right. Yeah, to come in and disrupt the system just because he just doesn't believe in the system. That doesn't necessarily make it better. That could make it horribly worse. Yep. 
because then our checks and balances are also strained as we're experiencing in the past few days. Right. So I'm intrigued with this concept of the country is in a business. And mm-hmm. so I want to like take a couple of steps back to that um, and sure. share kind of what's alive for me. Right. So I'm a sociologist, so I'm always looking at it from social historical and I have a fair background in anthropology as well. So mm-hmm what like really came alive for me when you talked and said a country is not a business, you can't run it like a business, is that the reason we have found businesses is to make it money, right? So that's the intention. Mm-hmm. So the intention of every organization survives in the, in, the, in the branch or in the process of it, right? It's like an organization is sort of like a tree. You have all the information from the apple tree is in the apple seed, Right. So if you have the intention of making money as you do for a business, then that's the way it grows. But the seed of countries, uh, and this is arguable, like what's the seed of a nation state? But generally, like if you think of a country as a community of people who are united by something, like the purpose of any type of government, if even if you go back to when we were tribes and we had tribal governments, is actually to make the community healthier. Right. It's like to survive the winter and prosper and have food and all of that, right? So that's why the country is in a business and you're helping me think about this, thank you. That no, you wouldn't run a country like you run a business because part of the purpose of a country is to take care of the whole, like all of the citizens. Correct. Regardless of their productivity. Correct. I will throw something else at you in that vein. We look at the United States of America as a country. It's really a collection of 50 states, plus a couple of territories here and there. You look at the European Union, it's called a union, but the EU is 27 different countries. And each country has their own culture and each country wants to keep its own culture and keep its own language, and in some cases, keep its own monetary system. So. Just because you have one entity doesn't mean that it's one entity. And jumping back to the United States, I will tell you a story that happened just the other day. I was speaking to my brother about the election. And he said, I don't understand why each state has different ways of electing people. Aren't we the United States? And I said, we are. He was specifically talking about the presidential election, how you choose your electors in different states. Some have mail-in ballots, some have automatic mail-in ballots, some have, you know, only in-person voting, that kind of thing. He said, I don't understand why everybody's different. I said, because each state, it's states' rights. States' rights mean that each state governs itself. However, when it comes to the president that oversees all of those states, Each state chooses the electors to go to the electoral college, and then the electoral college votes as one body in one way to elect the president. That's part of the reason why the electoral college exists. Not, again, that I agree with it, but it exists because of states' rights. So when you're looking at the United States as one big body, it isn't. It's 50 bodies. The same with Pennsylvania. I will also tell you why Pennsylvania is a commonwealth. By the way, there are four commonwealths in the United States, in case you didn't know. 
It's Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Virginia, and Kentucky. Okay. A commonwealth comes from the words common wheel, which is for the common good. And what happened in Pennsylvania was when Pennsylvania was formed, it was a bunch of little farms all over the state. And each little farm was its own little fiefdom. And they liked it that way. So they decided to come together for the common good, but to keep their individual fiefdoms because they did not trust a central government. So we have Harrisburg, but each individual area is controlled there. And it's very split up and it will never come together. There are lots of examples in the tax world of why that is and what the structure is and why the structure is what it is. Because we as a state are not a state. We are a collection of little fiefdoms. So things that look like one overall thing aren't necessarily overall things. They could be a collection of So this is fascinating because it's sort of saying oftentimes when we talk about unity, we're thinking of unity because of how we called things, but we're not actually looking at the systems that are underneath it. With the United States, we have this electoral college system that is meant to preserve the individual state systems. And for some individual states like Pennsylvania and the other commonwealths you mentioned, they're actually designed to preserve the even further local system. So they're, they're in part, they're not cohesive because they were intentionally not cohesive. That is correct. They were designed to preserve the local. local I, I will also tell you, based upon my travels across the country, I learned a tremendous amount. I did keep a journal. I did write what could have been an op-ed when I got home. Um, page and a half. And I grew up as a big city suburb kid. That's all I knew. And I thought in my head, even though I'm intelligent and I get this and everything, I just assumed that the rest of the country is the same. It's not. And what I found was when you drive through the country, depending on where you are, what I thought was a country made up of a bunch of big cities with some small towns in between is really a country of small towns with some big cities thrown in. And it becomes very apparent when you, especially when you travel the way I did with no interstates, you get to drive through these small towns and it's one after another, after another, and they're all the same. You know, you drive in, you see the factory, the restaurant bar, the school, the church, uh, the hardware store, and a couple of other things. And then five minutes later, you're out and you're going towards the next little town. That's what people's lives are. You don't see Mercedes and BMWs. You see Chevys and Fords. You see little houses on big plots of land. You don't see McMansions because their life is very different and their life is centered around the factory. Now, what happens if the factory closes? You got a problem because that's what those people depend upon. So to take it a step further, you have a pandemic. If you work in a factory and everybody in that town works in that factory, 
you've got two choices. If the pandemic hits and your factory closes, you're all out of the job. If your factory stays open, you better hope that they have safety precautions in place because you have no choice. You have to work there. You look at some of these meat processing plants. You can't say, well, you know, I don't think it's safe. I'm not going to go to work. You're out of a job. There's no alternative. So the idea in a small town is very different from a big city. If you're dependent on that factory, go ahead. So, and that is the impact of a country run like a business, I would say. Uh, yes, yes. Because in pure capitalism, I only need you small town because of that factory work that's going to produce for right. the country. This is the piece of like being Italian and living in small town Italy for 10 years mm-hmm. and being small town America. It's very different because these small towns are not self-sufficient. That's correct. It's exactly what you're saying. They're all dependent on one or two factories mm-hmm. and all their money is going to chains, right? It's going to Rite Aids and Popeye's. Right. McDonald's. And so there isn't a circulation in Italy in small towns. There's a circulation of money internally. There are some outside things too, but there's a small, it's like there's a small economy. And I know a lot of places like that around the world as well. There's a small inner Mm -hmm. economy and then there's the outer economy. Right. I'll go to the city to buy a car, but I can find everything I need in my small town. Like I can Almost everything. What you have in the small towns is a Dollar General. That's where, or a Walmart. That's where the money goes. That's where you go to get everything because there aren't the little stores like you're talking about. It's a big chain. There are more Dollar Generals in the South than there are bathrooms. They're everywhere. So what I'm hearing you say, wanting to shift the kind of conversation a bit towards collective power, right, Uh is part of where we have power is fueling the local economies, right? Right. Because the Walmart money is always going to go out. Correct. It's not going to stay within. Right. And and I, I also feel like, and you're speaking to this, I think anyone who lives in the Northeast who's never spent some time in the Midwest needs Mm -hmm. to go to the Midwest and hang out with poor white folk. That's exactly what I said when I came home. Anyone who has not seen it and has not gone needs to go. Yes. Because it's important. I will take it a step further talking about international. I have spent several trips in the Philippines. We think we know what poverty is. We have no clue what poverty is, none whatsoever. And let me tell you, the first trip that I took to the Philippines, which was in 2009, opened my eyes and I came back from there saying, everyone needs to go to a third world country to see what poverty looks like. Because if you think North Philly is poverty, if you think West Philly is poverty, you ain't seen nothing. So David, I will say that with an addendum right? Mm -hmm. What we have that most poor countries don't have is we have an infrastructure, right? 
a poor house in Kenya doesn't have a bathroom, right? Or doesn't have water. And even the poorest of houses, we may have that. And I've seen houses in North Philly that get really freaking close. Because with slums, right? Like I've seen houses in North Philly without toilets. Yeah. That were like inhabited by two families, right? So I just want to add the, like, let's not dismiss it completely. Right. Okay. But it's, it's not as prevalent. Yeah. So uh, it looks a little different. So David, how can people get in touch with you? Best is email. I don't know if you have a way of putting that out there. Yeah, you can say it out loud right now and then I'll put it on, on the show. Okay. Now. Well, I'm going to spell it. So my email, as you know, is dactyl, D-A-C-T-Y-L, like the dinosaur, at kaplancpa.com. That's C-A-P-L-A-N-C-P-A.com. Dactyl at kaplancpa.com is probably the best way to reach me. And in the last minute, any last thoughts? Just hang in there. This pandemic will end. We will be back to normal, maybe a year from now, but we will get back to some sort of normal and things will go back to where they were before. Thank you, David. It was a pleasure having you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.